Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. <laughs> I don't want to say their name though. That's lending too much credibility. Wow. So, I don't know. I have never heard of them before. Uh, and I saw the bumpers on on Aaron's truck, and I was like, eh, I guess he just bought some uh, some knockoff stuff, which is r- weird for Aaron. They've served me well so far. Well, I'm sure they haven't fallen off, and they would take an animal strike. That both. Well, not only have they not fallen off, but they have taken multiple animal strikes. I think I've killed as many deer with those bumpers as I have. Out of a tree stand. So you want some crazy irony. If there's one American that should hit deer, it's me. I cross this country so many times. I mean, the entire foundation of Fab Fours, the first couple of years, was me driving around like a carny, pulling a trailer. But I, you haven't, you're about to say you haven't hit any animals, but everyone who's ever borrowed your vehicles has hit animals in your vehicle. That's true. There is a lot of that. <laughs> but I, like, yeah, me. I'm the guy. Jump in front of me. I could get a video of that. I'd be out there holding it up, like showing what can. happened to it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nope. Never once. But then again, uh, when Ryan borrowed your truck and the buzzard. Allegedly. <laughs> wait. I so don't know. This is a true story. The story I heard was that he was driving down a regular road in College Station mm-hmm. and a buzzard struck the hood. The hood. And then went in through the windshield. Because it broke the windshield too, didn't it? You know, you're. I think that now the, that you mention it, I'm pretty sure the I buzzard exploded inside the vehicle. That that seems like it would have been much harder to fix. Ultimately, I feel like he just had to go source a hood. Oh well, that's actually I in my head, which I, I do not endorse any <laughs> of the rest of that story, and I learned about it third party later. So I. We won't use last names, so it's totally okay. <laughs> also, the statute of limitations on hood theft is probably yeah. like well right. past its prime. In high school, I was with a friend who had a Pontiac Sunbird, which was the even less sexy Chevy Cavalier. But it was a cool car back then, right? It was a, it was a car. <laughs> Aaron's like, mm. <laughs> I mean, Brian's like, no. It, it was a car that got us around, and we blew a front tire once, and we pulled. It was like December. We pulled into this parking lot to change the tire, and we pull into the lot, and the car literally next to us is a Pontiac Sunbird or whatever. And uh, you just swap the tires. We're just like, man, fuck <laughs> <it."> <laughs> no, you we're just, I'm just gonna pass this problem off to someone else. Oh my god! And uh, I Way feel guilty that about forward. that to this day. That's an excellent. But, that's an excellent. So if that ever happened to you, reach out to us here. Exactly. <laughs> right. I owe you a hundred bucks. Yeah, this was uh, over twenty years ago, so I feel like we haven't the, named any towns. Aaron confessed right. to hitting a woman in the face on a podcast we did last week, so I feel as though he's not so, shy about uh, admitting a, ca- yeah, a case yeah. of mistaken identity. But <laughs> that bar is much higher <laughs> than I expected. Retitle yeah. this podcast: "The Bougie Criminal Record of Aaron." <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so. We were just chatting, and I want to hear more about how you and Doug met or know each other from back in the... Oh, God. This is a story that doesn't need to be told, where, that wherein we go back to Doug's annoying roots. <laughs> Has nobody else <laughs> been on here talking about that before? Nope. No. I'd be the first. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. Basically, Doug's life pre-2005 
only exists in the lore that I tell. <laughs> Man, I don't know <laughs> if you want me to undermine no, it's the totally myth okay. in the persona of people the man. People know that, that I was 5'4"-ish uh, and 110 pounds in college and, uh, you know, like still growing. I didn't hit puberty until like 23, so... That Some much? say you never did. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I don't want to be rude. Uh, trust me, you wouldn't be the first go, on that front. Go ahead front. and be rude. The truth is the absolute defense against well, slander. And there's nothing I can say. I, mean, I could give you the summary I gave to someone on my way here. Uh-oh. So as an outsider, what are you doing? I'm going to go do a podcast with an old friend from college. Well, in full disclosure... Probably Doug annoyed the shit out of me. I annoyed the shit out of everybody, yeah, though. College. That's I mean, true. He was like that guy that is like always there, but very irritating because your voice drink w- was even higher. Way higher. You were skinny, annoying, but very mouthy, like talking shit about everything. I grew into that. Did you do the <laughs> fake Southern accent thing more or less than now? I don't remember that as much. But Everyone had them, so it was yeah. okay. <laughs> everybody was kind of also bought into that persona at A&M, kind of the... The same cowboy boots and everything. Everyone had red wing boots. Yep. Everyone dipped. Pecos. Those are except me. I was actually no, red wing. Yeah, red wing Pecos. Pecos yeah. Counter that culture. I was the outsider the other way. Greg was, was a little a, pretty boy. Greg was a pretty boy. So but he was really handsome, and we kept him around to sex things up. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. true. So we each had our role, but <laughs> Doug. I mean, so that's how it was. It was, was fine. Like we needed comedic relief. A lot of the jokes he was the butt of. And because just, I had no money and I would do things like buy buy a Bronco off the internet that involved a trade for a boat. Like the door held on by a damn lawnmower, lawnmower blade. blade. No brakes. And I insisted on driving it in Moab like an idiot. Like, look at me. I bought this car that should not have been on the road. And I'm going to be cool like you guys. I should have rented a Jeep and shut the fuck up. But if you're not into <laughs> off-roading, let me put some color to that story because... <laughs> Doug's decision to buy a piece of shit, you would say, well, it's his money. He can do what he wants. Au contraire in the world of off-road because your group is a brotherhood. You don't leave a man behind out there either. So whatever shit goes in, all has to come out. And everything that broke was on everyone else to fix. (laughs) It was was a real dick move on my part. (laughs) So it's ideal if everything's kind of in a semblance of similar mechanical acceptable and then Doug would show up with shit like that and my peer and the peer pressure was so high that like (laughs) I had to prove myself basically the reason I became a Green Beret was I spent I was like man those fuckers at Texas A&M they're gonna learn like I am cooler than them true story (laughs) (laughs) and I bought this Bronco and we were everyone made fun of me like to death even this inbred sister fucker that was uh, that hung out with us all the time constantly made fun of me. I, I hated it. It oh, made man. me so mad. So like we go to Lions Back, which is this like super narrow closed now. Very oh, is Crazy. it closed? Yep. Yeah. Is that the one where I've seen all the videos like people fucking that Bronco off the side? going buck just yeah, yeah. all the way down and yep. yep. That's wow. why it's closed. Yep. All right. But we went to do it. I don't think you were there the day that I drove up, and I think you and your dad were were doing uh, motocross riding because Greg had motocross bikes. And he, I don't think he actually liked off roading in jeeps as much as he liked motocross riding. Because out of everyone in our group, the only person that was even in shape at all was Scott Schubring, and that's just because he like had a lot of energy, right? You were like the kind of dude that was like, oh yeah, I go to the gym four or five times a week. Like Greg was like 
fit and of broad shoulders. So like things like riding a motocross bike, something he was capable of. The rest of us are all like, I don't know that <laughs> thing would throw me. Drinking. <laughs> There's a lot of beer drinking. I think I was there though. I remember you having mechanical it was, I, shortcomings I tr- on that. I tried to drive up it and my carburetor was coughing out because it was like a fucking- I was there. Yeah, poorly tuned two death. barrel. And everybody was like, oh, I guess the stuff making fun of me started again. And people were like, that piece of shit will never make it up there. And I was like, man, fuck you guys. And I was like, I'll hit this thing in second gear. No way it'll come out then. It's like a really vertical start and it pans out and it's kind of bumpy all the way up. And the suspension on that thing wasn't very good and the shocks were worn out. So like I hit that thing, like I was like, here we go, dump the clutch, up I go and like launched off the first part and then basically lost control of the vehicle the rest of the way up because like every bounce had my foot coming off the gas and slamming on it. So I'm like just all the way to the top. I got to the top and it was like I had bent the steering wheel because <laughs> I was just like death grip Scott and Troy both ran I up lions there. back. They were freaking out. They thought I was going to die. Like we they, all did. So yeah. here he is. He's already fucking annoying all the time. <laughs> And now he's going to kill himself while we're here witnessing it, which I nobody believe, wants to see. I don't want to see it on that video. I don't want to see Doug die off this thing either. I knew at that moment that no matter how annoying I was, that they were my friends because people cared that we I was going to die. We cared. <laughs> the brotherhood was strong. All right. So the rest of the story, though, as I'm telling yep. somebody today driving here. So we've established that in the group. Doug was annoying. True. Very mouthy. Still is. Well, time passes, right? Everybody graduates. That was in our group. You don't, you know, it's four corners of the world. Everybody's gone. There's kind of a big lapse before we kind of got into a rhythm of going back on the annual off-road trip to Clayton, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. And then you start kind of hearing rumors like, fucking Doug, dude, have you seen that, that picture of him? I'm like, no. Like, he's jacked, dude. Like, once he got all roided up and joined the military, I'm like, the army, come. The army puts it in your oh. cereal. <laughs> like I don't I can't even fathom it I couldn't imagine it and then sure as shit yeah it's what happens when you hit puberty at 23 also <laughs> yeah. I'm reasonably certain that uh, being homeschooled up until the point like I had like two years of regular high school before I came to A&M so like my socialization period if you recall that makes sense when I lost my virginity in college like if there was a whole year there where I was like no 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 man I don't do those Wait, kind were of you things. there when he lost his virginity I was not present it was not okay. a gangbang type thing Aaron but well, you just said if you recall <laughs> but I do actually I probably was in the house there's was, actually a good chance <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was guiding the insertion. somewhere on Dexter Road I, I was around <laughs> and I told stuck. somebody I was like man that was a, I made a terrible mistake and they all made fun of me for that well as well they should have but also like I had a lot of like evangelical guilt over these things but I think I was 19 when that happened and uh, then there was that whole like year of like self-loathing continuing to return to the well just to see if I liked how the water tasted some say Jesus is still crying (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like uh, I definitely there was a lot to learn there and luckily out of everybody, like you were always kind, no matter how annoying I was. And Scott was always there to like dust me off. Like no matter how bad it was, I could like, he'd be like, Oh man, don't worry about it. So I'll buff out. Oh yeah. <laughs> so from a transformation though, I mean, we come a long way. We have come a long way. I mean, of I, all the people that were fat, they're all fatter now. And then there's me and Scott. He's more fit than I am. I cover it well in clothes. Scott's, and then there's fucking Doug. Who's off the charts? 
I just fit remember when we out. came back, like so pretty when crazy. I, when I came back to get a uh, graduate degree, and I was hanging out again with some of the same people that were just around, and to, uh, Andy, Andy Vincent. Yep. Came All right, he's fit. back. Yeah, dude, Andy's strong man. Andy's always a beast. Different category. But it was hilarious that I showed back up to work out. Like, I'm like, hey, man, like, I was bouncing at bars and stuff in grad school because it's like I'm a bigger guy now. And we'd go out with the old crew, and people were like, oh, I want to see you fight Andy Vincent. Who would win? I'm like, well, first of all, Andy's going to fucking kill me. He's an enormous <laughs> man. Like, he's a pro football player who was like a, a Division One like award-winning linebacker for AM during the years that like the defensive line was like one of the best in the nation. He played he played pro ball for what three years? Something and, like that. And now he's like a nationally ranked Highland Games strongman guy. His brother's uh Matt Vincent, the yeah. I hate Matt Vincent guy who's like also a super strong guy. <laughs> but it's funny because like I talk with those guys all the time now about like you know strength training and like just like, hey man, we should do a Highland Games together. And I always laugh because I'm like, man, I looked at Andy, I was like, first of all, the only way I'm going to be unified is if I have a fucking gun. And I was like, and I will. If we if we fight, and Andy's like laughing, and I'm like, yeah, he's like, I don't want to fight you. I was like, I don't want to fight you either. But also, I think it's telling that like fast forward from when we first met, and you hated me because I was annoying and not competitive, and now everybody wonders what a death match between us would look like. And he's like, yeah, man, super weird, right? I'm like, yeah, I just remember Andy losing his shit when we had a Texas A&M off-road intramural softball game and people weren't competitive enough. This is some serious shit, guys. We I was need, not there for that. We need to win. And I was like, this is an intramural softball game. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and now he tosses the caber, yep. and takes his pants off, <laughs> and puts on a skirt. Hey, you say that that's now. How you know you're a real you man. Say, you say that now. Andy's a super intense dude. The first strongman competition I went to watch him do, he like they had a axle press that was legitimately a 14 bolt axle with tires on the ends of it did you go to that in the woodlands no he did it was like everybody before him was doing like four reps and it was i mean it's like a 300 pound axle and andy just shows up and does he bangs out like 13 reps and stops he's like i don't want to burn myself out and i was like um what the fuck <laughs> dude just push press 300 pounds 13 times like I, I half ass sponsored him once. Did you? Just with Jeep parts. Right so on. Then you'd be going around. Uh, I was a huge strongman fan. So he's in the minor leagues or whatever that is. You know, it's, there's a couple dudes in the world, the Brian Shaws that are on the real deal. But Andy, man, he's making those rounds out there, living it. He's uh, he's he's very competitive. I mean, he's and he's like a good dude. I really oh, like yeah. what he and I mean what they're doing in Sulphur. Like when they're they're back home and they offer a bunch of like lifting coaching to kids like middle schoolers like just come to our garage and we'll teach you how to lift and i'm like so he's asking for middle schoolers to come to his garage <laughs> his son's in middle school yeah his son's in middle school so it's all good yeah good guy. he's not he's not giving him candy to fucking <laughs> lick the swizzle stick no just come get <laughs> come get sweaty i mean i don't know if he's doing that or not i can't speak authoritatively all right so after college yep what leads you down the path to starting fab fours so Greg didn't want a real job. A lot job. of people don't hear, hear this story often. I actually <laughs> did take a real job. So when I graduated from A&M, I wanted to move to Australia. Right. That was my little vision. Admirable. What I because wanted, of the off-roading culture there? or just Well, that was my vision. I knew that, well, Toyota Hilux in that part of the world is cool, and so I just had this vision. I'm going to move over here. I'm going to buy a Toyota. 
I'm going to work as an engineer, but I'm going to get to go to the beach and off-road in Australia. Sounds like a heck of an adventure. Aggies don't dream big. (laughs) So that was my plan. I got the job. I moved to Perth, Australia. Now, granted, I didn't know shit. I'm just a kid, basically, at that point in a foreign country. So as an expatriate, normally you know something. That's why you're brought there across the pond. They already have plenty of their own unknowledgeable 23-year-olds. They wouldn't need me. Were you recruited by the Australian Immigration Service because you were an engineer? No, none of that. Okay. Let's just call it spade a spade. Yeah, right on. My dad's company had arms there. His business had been acquired, but the acquiring out of Aberdeen, Scotland, had arms all over the place. So it was like, hey. Can you get me a job in Australia? Delightful taste of nepotism. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) So I was in. We approve of that around here, so there's nothing you need to be embarrassed about. not. I mean, it worked out great, except the colossal bait and switch. So I live in Perth, Australia for all of three weeks, and that was actually a learning experience. I didn't realize that an entire culture could work so little until I went there. No, it's badass. It is. In a way it is. But for some reason, I have, I've always had a hard work ethic and a lot of ambition. My first thought there was I could own the entire country. Like They literally <laughs> work like an hour and a half a day. They'll never be upset with you either. It blows like, my they'll just, mind. They'll just call you a good cunt and then like move on. Dude, I felt like, man, I could work three hours a day and run this place. But I got kicked out of Australia because they had another office through the same company that had just opened in Jakarta, Indonesia. And they actually needed some, quote-unquote, help. Again, I don't know shit, but I could do whatever. So at that time, when I was told that, like I did not even know where Jakarta was on the globe <laughs> at all. And it's it was not even in my realm of possibilities for a dream. The dream was Hilux Perth. There's now Hiluxes in Indonesia, too. Yeah, great. <laughs> now it was... Perth, or going to Jakarta, sorry. So I had no say. I moved to Jakarta, Indonesia. Okay, so if you're not familiar with it, you know, the chain of islands there. I mean, Jakarta is a massive It's the most populous city. Muslim I learned about country. It. I learned about it from Carmen San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> well, populous is also fascinating. I think at the time they said the population changed by over 6 million between night and day from everyone going back to the countryside and back in in the morning. Really? When you think of that that quantity, because the overall population of the city being in like 16 million or something. So I moved there. By all accounts, it's kind of a shithole. Right? This is a third world country, more or less, where you've got the abject poverty De- right next to this developing world. De- wait, wait, let's use let's use the proper nomenclature. I don't know what I just <laughs> used, but okay. Developing. So, which doesn't bother me because, you know, as Aggies, as yep. off-roaders. I mean, you're I, used to abject poverty. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, motherfucker. Well, even to this day, you know, I can be comfortable. Yeah. In the Middle East, at some freaking Sultan's place, getting wine and dined, or I'll go camping out there in Oklahoma. Don't care. Both cases. So same in Jakarta. I had no problem, kind of assimilating later after living there. But in the beginning. It sucked because the office they put me in was next door to the apartment complex. Oh, so you just walked. And I didn't even get an apartment. I had to live with my boss, who was a British expat, 
and a real piece of work. I learned everything about what not to do as a boss from that guy and living with and him. And you got to live with him. Oh, yeah. It was <laughs> awesome. So, Aaron, we're, we're becoming roommates now. <laughs> my entire universe shrank to this. Yeah, you walked, the four walls. walked 100 yards. Eighth square mile in Jakarta, Indonesia at 23 years old. Brian so, and I can sing you the song of our people. This is what we refer to as a deployment. It's awful. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, I mean, I sit there at night and I'm just like, what am I doing here? I should be doing fun shit. Yeah, 24 years old yeah. and I'm in Indonesia. Doing nothing. Like, I was basically trapped there. So, in my own tiny version of Dougism, I ordered up a bunch of creatine and had nothing to do. Oh, getting loud. Nothing to do but work out every day. And it's like, hey, I'm here. Yeah. Make the best of it. So get swole, get angry. Doing that and started to play on like their little softball team, having a, as much a good time as I could. At which point I was like, there's got to be off-roading in Jakarta. Look. Which there there is. There is. In a extremely depressing, decade-lagging, shitty kind of way. Samurais, bro. We're talking like FJ40s with spring unders in the original shitty axles. But there's people in Jakarta with money, which you discovered. There are. Well, so at this point, though. I saw a samurai on the highway in North Carolina a number of years ago that was riding maybe two inches off the ground. Yes. And the license plate was Slamurai. Yes. I was like, Fuck yeah, bro. I like that. I fucking like that a lot. We we have like I I laugh about him like Greg's opening this business in Jakarta like doing what he's doing is hilarious like I want him to finish this but Samurai's got me thinking about I'd rather be spanking the monkey off road. Do you remember those dudes? The Fort Worth off road crew that all had like Samurai's on deuce and a half axles with like fifty four inch tires. That. They had their their club motto was this, this terribly drawn cartoon of a monkey masturbating and flinging semen. You know what? I think Johnny Chimpo. So I lived in Dallas for three months. Yep, and it may have been Cowtown, but there was a dude. We'll we'll come back to your story. Now, <laughs> now actually, I'm getting um, too long winded on that. Anyways, no way, bro. Negative. <laughs> there, were, there was a dude that had an F two fifty on either forty fours or forty sixes that was a problem. I mean, this was this huge truck. Would come out with all these jeeps to like. Uh, it sounds like I'd rather be spanking the monkey off road. What was that, Gilman or? Yep, Gilmer. 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 Yeah. Yep. And uh, like this, tr- you know, same thing you were saying before. Like this truck was so much bigger than every other rot- rig in the group that like any problems it encountered, like no one else could deal with it. Right. So anyway, this dude's in a fucking parking lot in Fort Worth, and he's cruising down an aisle of cars. And this car starts to back out that doesn't see him coming, right? He swerves this thing. <laughs> the fucking truck is so big that the, it hits the car, like the row of cars opposite. <laughs> but because the tires are so big, it rides up onto the trunk of one of these cars <laughs> and fucking completely rolls over, totaling the truck in the parking lot. <laughs> oh, no. And everyone was just like, fuck that guy. Yes, like that truck is finally <laughs> fucking dead. Fuck this guy. We're never going to have to see this thing out on the trails again. That's the staple of Texas off-roading. Anyway. Ex- yeah. Extreme lifts and way too big tires. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just lots of broken parts. Reminded me, and I wanted to throw that in there. But back to this might actually to, be the longest version of this history I've ever told. 
It's fine. That's fine with us. We usually do like an hour and a half of these things, and people wonder if we've done drugs, like on the Joe Rogan podcast. But it's just who we are. We're just rambling, ADD-ridden adults. So I have this horrible job, horrible boss. This guy is banging prostitutes in my apartment, and I'm in my room <laughs> as a as an Aggie. Like, how shocking was this to you? Very shocking. We were really sheltered in college. I, I had a sheltered upbringing. Yeah. No, me like, too. I mean, the idea of that at It took all, the army to basically make me understand that sex work was real work <laughs> when, you know, like half my team is is like engaged <laughs> to sex workers every deployment. You're like, what? What happened? <laughs> well, as a kid, too, I always, I mean, my parents were married and I was oblivious to any challenges they might have. Now you it realize- It was a perfect marriage. Every adult <laughs> has problems. It's oh, yeah. tough. Marriage is hard. Married, it's hard. Having kids is hard. Yep. Everything's super but hard. But not for our parents. It didn't seem like it, <laughs> but me watching this guy, knowing he had a family that had come to visit, and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe it's happening, A, and B, like right there. It's, if I took my headphones out, I can hear what's happening. So with my headphones in, I was listening to Coldplay Clocks on repeat over and over and over. That was like my life-saving song. So to this day, when that comes on- You think about prostitutes like, in, hmm. in uh, Jakarta? <laughs> I try not to think about Big George in the other room, just about- that's my jam. Save me from a dark place there. Man, that's a hell of a YouTube video. <laughs> you know, actually, while I was in that apartment, the Marriott bomb went off at that oh, time, which no was shit. worldwide news at yeah. the time. And I felt it because it was only a couple blocks away. And but, that, you, but you just put on some clogs. Yeah, I didn't care. <laughs> the world melted away. Right? <laughs> as far as I was concerned, it was super nice people there, you know. I, I think that Indonesia, it, something, so Brian, I've spent a bunch of time in the Middle East, I'm, as you have at this point, and like, it's very interesting to see how the further you get away from Mecca and Medina, like, the less religious, like, ideologically motivated uh, people are by the religion. So, like, you know, in Saudi, people are at least vocally very adherent. And then like you get up to Morocco and people are kind of like, well, I'm a Muslim, but I don't actually even know what that means. And in, in Indonesia, it's like, we let women run this country. You know, like we don't, we're Muslims, but like kind of in a weird, like mystic animist kind of way. Like we're really Muslims, but also we respect women, like have very liberal social values. It all depends on how close you are to the flagpole. Yep. It's just like in the army. But it was like, 98% Muslim yep. and every hotel you'd go to it's full mirrors under the cars so there's kind of a perception of danger but yet as a person that just lived there like but where I've never seen it all I see is nice smiling Indonesians I feel like what you begin to realize too when you spend some time <laughs> countering violent extremist organizations is that it's never the locals that are the the problem well maybe not never but Usually it's not the locals. Usually it's interlopers that are coming to remind people in Indonesia that that uh, they're straying from from the path. Like Saudis always pop their head up everywhere. You know, like, hey, who is uh, who who carried that bomb in here? Oh, man, it was a Saudi. Who would have guessed? <laughs> like Or Chechen, you know, like converts are really uh, very like very serious. People just want to live their lives. Man. Well, I'm not going to get political, but I agree like. Everything gets blown out for the sensationalism in the media. Like, when's the last time you bumped into a racist? 
Oh well, unfortunately, well, yeah, we're in the right. south, so uh, there, <laughs> you got to look for that Nick, stuff. Get the if scroll. You, want to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I see it was the same way, and what was crazy? So, started to get past my self-loathing. Was going to branch out, go off-roading. Started to write a business plan about opening an off-road shop. What else was I going to do with my spare time in the evening? Yeah, and by write this, I mean I probably got. Four sentences. Pursue down. your passion. So I've never been one to actually capture a lot of thoughts on paper. But I ended up venturing out here and there to a couple of bars in Jakarta, some good times back then. And I met an investor in a bar. So this wily old cat, his name was Rick, and he was an ex Red Adair oil well firefighter. Nice. Pretty hardcore dude. And he was from Texas. But it somehow made all his money in that firefighting. And like the other 65-year-old expatriates that lived in Indonesia, frat boy. He's on his fourth family. Absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. Family's long gone. I mean, you cannot hang with these old guys over in Indonesia. Like, they figured this thing out. And oh, by the way, most expatriates, with their vast knowledge that they bring, make a lot of money to be given that hardship assignment. They have drivers, a house, et cetera. Rick, none of that, just a retired guy. But in the half hour we were sitting there talking in a bar, his famous words to me were, if you have the plan, I've got the money. And so I went home, thought about it, and then I called my folks. I'm like, I'm going to open an off-road shop in Jakarta. And it was a toss-up when we heard this about which was crazier, whether you were going like, (laughs) wait, where? Also... Greg's in commercials. Like this was also you were doing uh, Asian commercials. Oh, I was gonna get there. Yeah, <laughs> it's in the timeline. Because so when this happened, so now I move into his house. We rent a shop on is number fourteen, Jalan Fatmawati, Jakarta, Indonesia. So we had a shop, no business, didn't speak Bahasa, and needed to promote rock crawling in this corrupt third world country, and that was the gig. So I lived there for almost three years with not expatriate money, just normal, no money. Yeah. Which I kind of liked because it just lived like an Indonesian, drove a scooter everywhere, freaking loved it, pulled the exhaust off like all the rest of them. And I mean, when you're pulling up to a light, you got to let people know you're coming. You all sneak through all the traffic and there'll be like 70 dudes on scooters. (laughs) And when that light goes green, it is just wide open into corners and everything. Take the restrictor plate off the old red dragon. It was (laughs) awesome. And as just a local Indo, it was kind of odd. I, here but, I am. But like an incredibly handsome, light-skinned local. For <laughs> the region, <laughs> I would have to say I was one of the most attractive white men in Jakarta because I had a 30-year advantage over all my contemporaries. When I think about you being there, I always think about Mr. Baseball, like from when uh, Tom Selleck went to Japan or whatever, and he's like towering over everybody, and everyone's like, oh, every woman's like... Ooh, who's that? <laughs> it did have some of that. Yeah. Because I did end up, somebody in a mall asked if I would want to model. And I said, sure. It seemed like a kind of a... Yeah, dude, five bucks is five a bucks. Ruse, but it was money. <laughs> so I did that thing, which ended up putting me in like all the posters in the mall. Kind I of saw like, you in a laundry sub commercial, I believe. That <laughs> that was my main shining achievement, being the Bingo Pawangi 
laundry detergent guy. It was like a Mentos commercial. It was pretty badass. It was. I can't believe you actually saw that. I need a, Scott probably has it somewhere. I believe that's who showed it to me. <laughs> but with that came some small level of fame, particularly when I'd go golfing, because over there you have to have a caddy, and all the caddies are five foot nothing Indonesian women. You know, really? All of them. Yeah. Amazing golfers. I don't know when they're allowed to golf, but they, uh, you know, I'd come up and everybody'd be snickering, and it was a great time. <laughs> And also being young, white, and having an off-road shop. Like that. Yeah, you're a cool dude. That alone drew interest. And so one of the cool things that happened, you know, in the off-road industry here, you've got legends. Iron Man Stewart, Walker Evans. Well, in Indonesia, they had the same thing. Some of these OGs that were doing the Rainforest Challenge and things like that. Well, it's cool. They started to seek me out because they'd see it in the newspaper or whatever. Like, what in the world? There's a American with an off-road shop. And of course, I was just wasting money and importing badass stuff like doubler cases for Toyotas and Ford 9-inch axles. Was it selling? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Terrible business. And uh, you know, at that point, I already needed my family to help invest. Yeah. And it was small by any comparison we ever got to in the U.S. But I'd have to drive my scooter to the bank, ATM out like 24 million rupiah because the conversion was like 8,000 to one. So I'd have a backpack full of bricks of paper money on my backpack in the country, cruising around and just and trying no, to make And it no work. one would notice you because you're not the only one. I actually didn't there. really care that much. But then... Now, I've got to wrap this piece up. I was going to import bumpers from Thailand. That became the most real thing I could do there because the applications in Jakarta from a vehicle perspective were the same as in Thailand. And there was a guy there basically knocking off ARB. Yep. A really strong brand that we'd all heard of. And I always like probably admired. the most successful Toyota bumper ever, oh, yeah. ever made. Yeah. And will be the only bumper company bigger than Fab Fours okay. because they have such a huge global international presence. market. Yeah. yeah, we're bigger than them in the U.S., but we don't even play in those other. I mean, they're still basically designing the exact same bumper, oh, just yeah. for different vehicles. Right? Oh, I talked so much shit about them for so long. Yeah, it's like, there's no. It's, it looked identical no matter what make it was on. But now I've come to learn the genius of that because yeah. it's hard being custom. So it's pretty <laughs> smart. Uh, but all those trips to Thailand, which were also a freaking hoot, just going to Thailand and seeing that culture, it's like, man, this is a world-class manufacturing facility here. What if I just made my own brand in the U.S. and outsourced over here to, to Thailand? Yeah. And, you know, growing up in Texas, I've always had the same pride as everyone else, made in the USA to an extent. But I think I was very fortunate growing up once my dad's business was more successful and they took me traveling internationally and even on my way to be dropped off, quote unquote, in yeah. Perth, my dad and I hit like 22 countries on a five-week worldwide tour that his company was doing. So hitting actual business meetings, I was just a tag along. Kuala Lumpur, Qatar, Dubai, all of these countries. Uh, playing golf in a lot of them too, which is a lot of fun. So I think I just had a different per worldview. 
Yeah. And I hope that our generation starting to get past some of this, like this world needs to shrink. Well, we're at a place where I don't, we're starting to realize like there are things that you want to do that you can't do in the States. Like, I mean, like from a production standpoint, like there's like the, the resources, the skills, the, the equipment to do certain things. You cannot do it in the United States if you wanted to. So like some things have to be offshore now. Like you can't, I mean, there's no way around it. And if people are like, well, I want what's made in America and they suddenly realize that their flannel shirt's going to cost, what, how much, Aaron? Like a hundred and, what was the cost on flannels? Yeah, 140 bucks. Big flannel shirt guy, <laughs> huh? We, we, we may yeah. or may not have had a, Aaron owned a flannel shirt company that we was made a, in America. We had a flannel shirt experiment that turned into a company by accident. <laughs> yeah. Swing and a miss. <laughs> yeah. But it's um, a, good, a good learning experience. I, a gentleman's D. No, but even when we talked, uh, you know, to Curtis at Spartan Blades, I mean, one of the things he talked about was just that we would never be able to produce ni- like mid-high-quality knives like Japan can just because they have all the infrastructure to produce the steel and the people there that can, like, grind the blade super quickly, accurately, et cetera. Well, However, Tim, yeah, Tim Cook said the exact same thing about like iPhones and stuff. Like we'd gladly bring the production to the US, but we have one factory that has like 1400 of these pe- specifically trained people. And in the entirety of the US, there's like 80 of these people. Like it just, we need the 1400. Yeah. They don't exist here. I think we're doing a good job here of the super custom, like one-off craftsmanship stuff. You know, like you can get if you're looking for the the really custom, super high quality thing, you can find a guy in the United States that's like, that's his passion. And, and there's one of him. Like that's like, or there's, fi- or there's five it. of him, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're gonna pay for it um, for sure. But in any event. So what helped my business though to this day to thwart competitors, because now I do manufacture in the US, yeah, yeah. so I may as well tout it, despite yeah, my for broad sure. worldview. Idiot. <laughs> the parts are so big. So yeah, shipping would kill you. Anything right? big does not cube out well in a container. Right. And the fact that I mean Fab Fours literally is the most expensive bumper on the planet. You cannot go find a more expensive one. I may or may not have priced them out at one point and I, I coughed as my right testicle receded into my lower stomach. Right. That was probably some price <laughs> well, increases yeah. ago. So, and real quickly <laughs> Yeah, it was I'll it just was kind of close that, that loop or gap between what was happening in Jakarta and like actually starting Fab Fours coming back to the United yep. States. Well that so, was Fab Fours. It was Fab Fours. There were four guys. And that was part of the original name. The Fabulous Four. That all, all Rick Baker's money started to dry up. And at the same time, I was ready to, I didn't envision living in Jakarta for 30 years. So I saw this Thai manufacturing as an out. And that is how it's like, okay, I'm moving back to the U.S. I'm going to develop a line of products. We're going to source them in Thailand. I'm going to distribute them nationwide. And I will be the designer and money collector. It's a good plan. Where would I like to do this? So I chose Durango, Colorado. Hell yeah. I love Durango. It's beautiful. Whole map of the U.S. Where do I want to live since I've been afforded this amazing opportunity to have zero constraints around my life and live wherever (laughs) I want? And I chose Durango. And it sounds like you guys know why. It's freaking awesome. Beautiful. Narrow gauge trains, skiing. And so close to Moab, Utah, yep. which is something I liked. It's about two and a half hours away. And I just, I love an alpine environment. Really, I, 
I've always been drawn to Colorado, but was not eager to be in a major city. Well, in Colorado, you've got Denver, Colorado Springs, and like nothing. Then it gets real small real fast. And shipping and distributing out of there is basically Well, impossible. at this time, I wasn't going to do any of that. You're just going to run the company? So from the what I liked about Durango is it was tiny with money because of all the tourists. So you could still have restaurants and some of that nice stuff. There's a reasonably accessible airport there, too. So that's like... A, Ish. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're talking De Havilland Dash 8 prop planes flying in and out of like that Farmington area. But it didn't work because... At the last minute on a trip back to Thailand, it's time to sign the deal, purchase order for bumpers, and I'll never forget it. The old Singha beer comes out on a tray, mm. and basically he doubled the price. Whoa. And it was a non-starter. It was just, it was completely out of whack. We'd worked all that way to get there. We had built prototypes in the U.S., shipped it to him. How did that feel? It was a gut kick. I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually thought it was over essentially because that was the entire strategy yeah and i don't know time will tell maybe it should have been over i think <laughs> we've uh, passed the hump a while back to consider fab fours a success but there was a long road then in between where really my dad encouraged me nope stick with it he became convinced when he saw the prototype that we had built out of physical steel in durango that could fit a truck to him, you know, his business had been in the service industry, selling offshore oil and gas engineering services. So it's selling man hours. I think he was very impressed that this is a real tangible good. Like a physical it's product. It's a thing. Yeah. Like, it's not an idea that you could design bumpers. Here is a bumper. So it makes sense. If you're telling me people would pay. When it's something you're passionate about, too. You very know? passionate about. And your parents, I mean, have always been really, like, supportive and involved. Like, I remember... My dad has done things with me, and I appreciate that, but they're often forced. Like, it's like my dad does this stuff with me because he knows that I like it, and he knows he's terrible at it, but he does it so we can spend time together. But, like, your dad was always all in. It's like, oh, you're in motocross? I'm in motocross. I'm going to get good at this. <laughs> but I think it, it sounded just like what you're describing. So maybe he matched it better. He didn't want to do any of that. Oh, he really? didn't want to do it with me. Right on. So he yeah. always seems so enthusiastic. Like he's the yeah. most positive. Like I've never met oh, anybody yeah. that's like he's always a smile. Like five in the morning rolls around. Oh, he's yeah. like ear to ear grin. Hey, how are you? I'm like, <laughs> I'm doing good, Mr. Higgs. <laughs> so Fab Force starts to take off. And so, well, at that time, that's the Carney days. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I completely missed my daughter baby time. Cause that was I mean, I was just gone. I had a enclosed trailer behind a Dodge Ram, and I would. This is pre smartphone, internet. Just pull into a random city, pull up the yellow pages, look at truck accessories, and I just make a route and go hit everyone on the next day. Like opening my jacket pockets, showing my wares. You know, will you please do a buy-in for twenty-five, fifteen, or ten thousand dollars to have Fab Force as a brand? And at first, it seemed crazy. You're thrown out of a lot of those shops. And I mean, a lot of those shops don't have a budget to, to front that either. No, not when I, they had no idea it was coming out of thin air. But I was a convincing salesperson to some extent because they, they could sense the passion and enthusiasm. And what I was selling was the concept of quality on time. From an enthusiast perspective, knowing that the entire automotive aftermarket is neither of those. 
the whole problem with this industry, and I assume it would be like this in any enthusiast industry. If you're into fishing rods or guns, you're probably going to see this. Enthusiast-born businesses, and they don't know shit about running a real business. So you got to challenge that there's both their assessment of what success is, which is probably reached early, and then at the same time, it's probably when all of their business acumen is tapped out. And that's a small size. So very few of these businesses in our industry or other enthusiasts, I'm sure. Well, especially high end where there's a large, like where there's small margins and a high cash outlay. It's like, oh, good luck, man. You know, you can, it's, that's why there's so many veteran owned t-shirt businesses because the margins are ridiculous and we can all make huge mistakes in the process of figuring things out. Makes Unless sense. you have like a, a mentor like Aaron to guide you, then the mistakes don't get made. Definitely don't want to be guided by me. <laughs> but, um, well, yeah, man. So as the company started to take off, I mean, where were those challenges in scaling the company for you? I mean, obviously, you know, it sounds like you had uh, your father as a mentor to, to be able to lean on. But going from one person yourself to 130 people now, you know, what were the major challenges or stumbling blocks for you along that path? Well, he has always been a phenomenal mentor because as you learn, business is business is business. There's so many things that overlap. The mean difference that I had to battle through myself was being a manufacturer and having my own product. So I have to build a brand around that and figure out distribution. Those are things he had not experienced some of the major hurdles early on, and I think this came from growing up and learning by osmosis. I mean, a little background. So my dad and mom, as Doug knows, you know, very humble people, even to this day. Yeah, super nice. You'd, you'd never guess that. Um, you'd never guess. I, was he at Exxon or? Well. Where was he before? It was a small thing called CBS. Okay. Just in Houston, uh, offshore and gas engineering. He and two guys from there each with 5,000 bucks a piece, started Mustang Engineering. There you go. Their goal That's... was to grow it to a 30-man company. Well, in 2000, I think 10 or something, I might butcher this, but it's over a billion annual now and had over 5,000 people. So that whole journey, you know, he started in 85. I was born in 79. So from six years old to, say, 10, that was in kind of his early fledgling years. But from 10 up, you know, it's just learning by osmosis, not even realizing it. He wasn't sitting me down or teaching me explicitly, but you're just kind of watching this thing grow. And I don't know. I'm sure my kids are listening to more that I say than I give them credit for, too. You can tell every once in a while. But, you know, they would acquire inadvertently companies that were 300 people. And this, and so my perspective of big was huge. Like, none of that seemed intimidating. Because I would learn how, you know, like, hey, we have no automation department. But BP had this giant Thunder Horse project, and they needed an automation group. So we hired two guys, and then they brought 100 people. And then we had an automation group, and that grew to 600 people. So I was just like, all right, it makes sense. It's you like know? downhole stuff. Yeah you, yeah, you don't have it. You can get some. You build on that. You're just leveraging the culture you have, the system that you had in place. I get it. It's all scalable. Well, I mean, honestly... You're doing that at Fab Fours now. I mean, we are. You guys, not only has your product grown, but like the company in my mind is unrecognizable from where it was. I mean, 
when were you in Jakarta? 2007? Well, back in November of 05. Okay. We debuted at the SEMA show in Vegas. Yeah. And so I had moved over in that summer. And then January 06 was our first time to sell. In the States. In the States. Yeah. So, I mean, 15, I mean, almost 15 years now. It does pass fast. It does. But those challenges that I was then encountering through scale, I, the point I was trying to make, I knew I wanted to grow fast. I did not want to have a small bumper company. Yeah. Even on day one, it was always go national. It didn't even cross my mind to sell in Durango, then Colorado, then adjoining states, not even for two seconds. I was going to be a national brand immediately. And so being an enthusiast, I'd read every Peterson's Off-Road magazine for 15 years, had every tire size memorized from the ads. I mean, just a, I loved it. Loved I, it. I don't think that I can actually physically make poop without having a Peterson's in my hand. To this day. Yeah, to this day. You're like, oh, I don't know. My bowels aren't moving. Peterson's in my hand. There it goes. Like, <laughs> so I wanted to take out a national campaign in that shock and awe with our brand, basically going, if I was looking at that next ad. What is this, I'm, like 2006? Yep. How oh. much does a full-page outlay in Peterson's in 2006 cost? That was a lot. And I think we even did a spread, which is two pages. Yeah. So we, I think we had somewhere in a $250,000 ad budget, which is absurd because I had total sales in 06 of 460000 bucks. So the the sheer outlay of cash was enormous early. Put all your chips on the table. <laughs> all somebody's chips. In, but yeah. In one basket too. <laughs> but I just had a vision for it because and to this day that still is what differentiates us a lot and myself. It's it's just thinking big. And there's kind of that two plus two equals seven when you start doing that. Because somebody else buys an ad, they have an ad. When I did that, it was, you had no ad. So I wanted that effect of, how could I not know who this is? I wanted industry insiders being like, what company is this? Like, who's partnering with them? Is this a subsidiary of, like, all the buzz that would come with it, which is far beyond what which is, was in it, just a shitty picture of a bumper. And it had that effect. Which bumper was it? Do you remember? My 03 Dodge Ram. Was it? Yep. And yes. I actually think the other two trucks in it were Photoshop bumpers on because yes. we actually didn't even have them. <laughs> so there was some smoke and mirrors to that combined with driving around. But in that first two years, I accumulated 460 jobber direct accounts. So a network of retail direct stores, which is actually to this day, almost the same major 400 plus that there are in the U.S. You know, some come and go, but of the 3,000 relevant to us that do truck part jobbers, as it's called, or shops, yep, we still have that core group. Now, granted, they've all transitioned to buying through distribution because you can get 25 Force bumpers delivered tomorrow for $12. Which is pretty absurd. That is. And that's the power of distribution. You know, if right now we could go to your local truck accessory shop, and if you wanted to get 27 17 Super Duty Full Guard Black Steel bumpers, they could all be here tomorrow, which is awesome. Damn, dude. Yeah. No, there's no competitor of ours that can come close to that. 
because of the scale that we've built in our manufacturing and the relationships with those WDs to trust inventorying that level of our parts. Our contemporaries are still made to order. They're taking Doug's credit card, yep. swiping it, putting your name on a list, and eventually we're going to make Doug's bumper, which is a giant pet peeve I could get into, the low barrier to entry into the bumper category. Well, you're essentially pre-sailing everything at that point. They are. And the one Ponzi. That, the one that gets burned in that, and there are some of our competitors... For example, yeah, yeah, yeah. if I was to make up a name, they were taking cards and not shipping ever. You want to talk about? Are they in, are they in business still? Oh, they're still cranking. Are they really? Well, I I made up a name. Yeah, so no, no, I'm no. not disparaging somebody, but yeah, yeah. Um, you think T-shirt margins are good? Yeah. Try a margin on nothing. It's got to be pretty tempting once you've done it and found out that nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think credit cards were even that savvy back then of the chargeback and cancellations and some of those things. And you always have the tough guys like, well, if that happened to me, I'd drive over there and kick his ass. Like, would you? Would you drive a thousand miles? Well, and it's at, and knock on somebody's door and punch them in the face. Like, and is you it, Family Guy fan eighty <laughs> four? You're not gonna do that. Well, it's the twenty first century too, where like the legal ramifications like it doesn't matter if a guy stole money from you if you punch him in the face you're still going to get charged with assault so like nobody wants most people don't want to do that exactly some people so (laughs) there were no ramifications yeah yeah. that said that whole jobber base and distribution well to this day they don't punish the ill doers and so it's very irritating because i mean you could go be doug's bumpers tomorrow because i promise you if you google we can find within 10 miles well, maybe. I don't know where we are. No, some, sort of, some sort of fabrication place. Absolutely. For sure. That's his job shop. And you can take them a sketch. They've got a dorky engineer, and he'll cat it up. And next thing you know, you've got it for the one car you own. You take out an ad. Yep. Boom. You hung a shingle. You're a bumper guy. And what's annoying in our space is, from a consumer perspective, it's hard to differentiate. Well, and you guys have put... It's definitely easy to differentiate on your product. I know um, other products out there are not so easy to differentiate. Like I don't, it is almost impossible for me to tell an actual ranch hand bumper minus the ranch hand placard that is zip tied to the ranch hand bumper because there are so many knockoffs of pipe, expanded steel, full grill, you know, protection bumpers. So I don't know. I don't know if it's a ranch hand or not. And in West Texas, like everybody's got one. So yeah. you just assume it, it's like, is that the bumper that you had on that? Yeah. F-150? The one that was on the F one fifty. but it's like, it's a cow catcher, man. Like it's yep. the, they're the best as far as like, if you're going to just run into pipes and like, you know, just like you want to beat your truck up in the oil field, like that's the go-to, but you can't tell the difference between 50 different manufacturing companies making the exact same bumper and the original, which I'm assuming is because they didn't patent the design. Or because they're not litigious and yeah. suing Dude, people. Dude, it's just diamond plate, right? And there's I mean, not enough no, ways to change it. It's literally six inch pipe that has diamond plate top and like some sort of like like uh, angle iron bottom to the frame, and then you have like one and a half inch drawn tubing that's bent around the, the headlights. I now call them all flat pipers, like a flat biller, because yep. that's how they always were. Our black steel, which has a lot more style to it, yep. have tapered wings, so the tubes are actually mitered to give it that angle and more of a sweep. And yours is all and yours is all custom like 
the angles match the vehicle, like the grill. I mean, it's a replacement grill stuff too. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, the grumper, dude. That's it's type mind boggling to me. Like, you, someone should Google Fab Fours and just look because it looks like a it looks like a space assault vehicle thing. Like, like man, but the radiator's protected. I mean, it's definitely it's pretty rad. So, what do you attribute? You know, your ability to get past the competition to. You know, the fact that there's all these places out there, some of them are scam artists, but you guys have been able to scale. Like you just said, you were able to get to a place where you guys have this awesome distribution network. How did you do it? Well, I think my risk tolerance and ambition to dream big was one big catalyst to that because it's still back to... There's so many folks in our industry that by time they could buy a boat and a summer house, like that's it. What was beyond that? To me, I, there's many times, I still can't rub two pennies together. don't care. It's all about the value putting back into Fab Fours. My, what really gets me going is still designing parts. And a lot of the pursuit of this growth is to give me more resources to design more outlandish and expensive things. I have my own wheel and tire now. That's a there's a big barrier to entry, but it was a lifelong ambition to design my own tread in a tire. It's pretty rad. And now I have it. There's a forty. I, it's 15 a bunch of dicks, five. isn't it? It's just a bunch of dicks and, on the <laughs> on the sidewall, <laughs> yeah. but only on the inside. Right. So yeah. So what's next? I mean, what what's ahead? Well, the second part of that question now. Right. So my ambition, my risk tolerance. Those are two differentiators between me and a normal proprietor in an enthusiast industry. But then to have a mentor like my father that brings all that experience from the bigger business. I mean, there's so many times I can remember him saying, man, we didn't do this till year 15 and we're in year three. That wasn't my doing. That's just my dad is a buddy. And he wasn't. The opportunity was there. You never would have taken it without somebody saying. It's just like, hey, I recognize like it'd be no different than if, you know, Matt. Vincent's no. I'm just Matt. trying to think of some, one of the CrossFit Games winner oh, type guys comes in Frazier. here. Yeah, you get Frazier in here. You're gonna say like, I think this guy knows his shit. Like I could listen to something. Anecdotally, he he is a genetic freak who doesn't know what he's doing. He just he just stumbled into greatness. Yeah, I shouldn't have gone into your playground <laughs> for the example. I understand that. You know what I'm saying? So sure. he, it was so. I yeah, have no I mean, reason learn, to distrust you learn from it. Other yeah, people's mistakes if you can faster. Absolutely, than you and he brought so many of those at a bigger size. So there's things we've done. We do an annual forecast, a May forecast, and an August forecast religiously now for ten years. And every month we have a board meeting that's got a binder an inch and a half thick with the graphs and data that we need to make decisions. The things that we prepare that we send to our banks for covenants review, they say they don't get from 300 million a year businesses way beyond our size that need way less than us. I can't take credit for having those things in place. It's having that mentorship. And then I actually hired a consultant to help us when we were her little sweet spot. She considered is getting people across no man's land. It's the title of a book where you're kind of too big to be small, too small to be big. You've got a product, it's in demand, but business is hard. Cash flow is hard. You know, and I had the struggle. It's like, okay, this thing, I'm gonna sell it for a hundred. It costs me fifty. So Doug, if I sell two, how much money would I have? 
hundred bucks. Yep. Seems easy. I would do that and then there would be no money. So yeah. it's like, okay, I don't understand. This is, I did everything. I, we said we sell 300 <laughs> right. of them. I know what they cost. I, we're doing the math. It's not, so she consulted for, I think, four years. And finally, I convinced her to quit her 18-year consultancy and come on as my VP of operations. This woman is now 73 years old and probably weighs Killing 95 it. pounds, dripping wet. And is tough as nails and runs that operation in the finance. So to have some gray hairs on the board yep. and that expertise has really set us up for, I don't have to worry about that as much. I don't lose sleep on that. And I had a lot of trust in my leadership team to keep me leveraged. Something my dad to this day envies. He, ha- he kept his finger in everything in the details. I was so passionate about product, like I almost couldn't be bothered by the rest. Like If I build it, they will come. If I just keep making the best part and pushing this brand, the rest will sort itself. And since I had them as a bit of a backstop on the back office, yeah, the combination of that's been awesome and given us this foundation to just keep scaling. I mean, there's right now, as I mentioned, yeah, I think we probably have at least $20 million of available capacity to manufacture right now. I would say the average capacity for a manufacturer in my space is negative. One million. Everything's back ordered. The whole damn industry. You want to look up a cool wheel in a magazine? You cannot buy it. Fact. So I keep seeing opportunities like that. That's why I made my own wheel. I waited for eight months for the wheels on my truck. Of course you did. So... Yeah. You wouldn't have if oh. you'd bought them from Fab Force. That's right. Guaranteed in stock. I'm oh. curious about that, though. You guys are, I didn't even realize you'd branched into wheels and now tires. Like, are you just spooling that up now? Or is yeah, that. And I probably shouldn't have done Probably that. shouldn't have talked about that. No, I mean. Sorry. I know we got to wrap this up pretty shortly as well. All right. So, Aaron's a special bonus go. for the softly listeners, though. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm intrigued. Oh. Do you have a target date for that? Or is that something no, else you They're out. Oh, are they? The reason I got into that space is my last most proud invention, which is 40s no lift. So that's the hashtag. Hashtag 40s no lift. So it's just what it sounds like. On Jeeps? Three-quarter one-ton trucks oh. to run a 40-inch tire without a lift kit. It's new fenders? Mind blown. Yes. It is an open fender system. So lift kits have existed forever. The objective of a lift kit is to fit a bigger tire. Yep. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. They do ride worse. They ride shitty. Now they're tall. They, you can't take it to the airport. doesn't fit through the drive through But you did it because you wanted a bigger tire. Otherwise, it's just for fording deeper water. That's yep. ridiculous. I went the other way, which was this low center of gravity trend, which, by the way, I just trademarked LCG, if you can believe it, for low center of gravity. Nice. That seems ridiculous, but Good I look for forward to enforcing that. <laughs> um, they just look badass. Anytime you can have a hunker down stance, we got a big tire on a low truck. It's just sick looking. Yep. And I wanted to make that commercially viable to all Americans. Look at you. That you're came. Like, you're at, like a regular yes. Donald Trump. Hashtag oh, freedom, man. <laughs> it came at great, great cost from an R and D. Super hard to do. The first ones we were cutting all the way into the firewall, and that's obviously I, not repeatable. It was for, tough. Yeah. I considered becoming my own little Roush and just building 200 trucks a year. Yeah, no. Um, I w- but instead, I made it available to everyone. 
So you can just get it at a local shop. They give all the templates and you can run 40s. Knowing that it used to be giant SEMA trucks on 40s, yep. the market for that tire is tiny. Yep. But I was about to make 40s the new 35. So if that thing took off like I expected it, then there would be a massive lagging demand for 40s. So why not slide in with my own? No, that's super smart. And it would allow me to have my own tread. So cool. now we got it. Got what you wanted. I'm going to have to check that out. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Where can people check you guys out and find you out in the, the interwebs? I guess there's media? a couple of you out there that don't know how to find us. So right. for that, fabfours.com. F-A-B-F-O-U-R-S. Can't forget the S on the end. Right. Yep. And, uh, and you'll know Instagram, it when you see it. Look Facebook. for Yep, it's on all those. I mean, uh, right now we just launched a fire pit. And if you haven't seen that, then you're living under a rock because it's just gone insane. I opened your website and saw it and thought it was an actual Jeep. I was like, what? Oh, wait, it's a fire pit. Badass scale fire pit. Cool. Thank you very much for joining us today, man. Hope we can do this again soon. Okay. Hey, thanks, Greg. Thanks. All right.